This podcast is brought to you in collaboration with The Sway. I cannot urge you enough to check them out at www.thesway.co.uk or check out their Insta at thesway underscore club. What are you waiting for? Welcome to the La 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 Let Me Explain podcast. Today, I have two representatives from Women's Aid here to join me and we are going to make this a domestic violence special. But before we start, I just wanted to make it really clear that we are going to be talking about mainly women being victims and survivors and men being perpetrators because the vast amount of victims and survivors are women and the vast amount of perpetrators are men men can be victims of domestic violence and there can be domestic violence in uh, female-female relationships but that is not uh, what research tells us is uh, the main problem but any of the advice can apply to whatever relationship you're in with whichever gender so I would like to in fact if you guys introduce yourselves um do you want to start? Because your name begins with A, so we'll start with you. <laughs> it's the fairest way to do it. Okay. Um, my name's Alex and I'm a domestic violence helpline support worker at Women's Aid. Fantastic. And I'm Sean and I'm the head of campaigns and public affairs at Women's Aid. Amazing. I cannot tell you how happy I am that you guys have come along. And when I put out um, a post to say that you guys were coming and did anybody have any questions they'd like to ask us, I have never had such a massive response. I got nearly a thousand questions. Mm. I couldn't Mm. read them all, but um, a lot of them had very similar themes. So uh, we're going to try and answer those questions as best as we can today. Um, What, how can people contact Women's Aid if they need to, if, if this podcast generates anything for them that makes them think that they need to go out and get some help what's is there a contact number yeah there is we've got a national domestic violence helpline number which is 24 7 it's 0808 2000 24 7 and if they just put women's aid into google then presumably they will be able to have access to lots of resources and information yeah that's right so i think the best place to start is actually asking what is domestic violence how how is it defined domestic abuse it's often kind of seen as like physical abuse in a relationship but a lot of abusive relationships can be abusive without any physical violence at all. A lot of emotional abuse and control is often the core of domestic abuse and abusive relationships. It can take lots of different forms. And what we often, like Alex was saying, hear about is physical abuse. And that's what lots of women think that domestic abuse will be like or seem mm. like. But actually, we know that what's running through the heart of most abusive relationships is coercion and control. And that's those really day-to-day behaviours that women feel like they're having to walk on eggshells. They feel like that behaviour is really grinding them down and they're losing their sense of identity and who they are. So that could be things like isolating you from friends and family and monitoring what you're doing, who you're talking to, how you're spending your money. So that's really kind of at the heart of domestic abuse. But then there's obviously sexual abuse as well. Lots of women in abusive relationships experience rape and other forms of sexual violence, which is really hard actually to talk about when you're in a, in a relationship with the person that's abusing you in that way. Absolutely. There's a lot of people who believe that if you are married to somebody, you cannot be raped by him. Exactly. That he has entitlement to your body. Yeah. And that conversation around consent in a relationship is really important and what that actually means. And um, the government are bringing forward a new domestic abuse bill, which is a whole new set of laws around domestic abuse. And actually one of the things they're trying to do 
with that legislation is to create a legal definition of domestic violence to try and get everyone on the same page. So that when we're talking about domestic abuse, there's like a common understanding of what we're talking about. And that definition includes physical violence, sexual violence, economic and financial abuse, which mm. is really important, um, and coercive and controlling behaviour. So what we can really see is that actually domestic abuse can take loads of different forms. Um, and it's really important to recognise that no two relationships will be the same mm. and no two abusive situations will be the same. But there are, exactly as Alex was saying, those common themes and threads that we see all the time. Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because it's, it's sometimes you feel almost like these perpetrators have like a handbook or a guidebook, you know, that's telling them what to do. Because I speak to so many women who obviously are not in exactly the same vein, but they're going through such similar things and being subjected to such similar behaviours. It's, it's almost textbook. Um, and that's why it's it's so important for us to really recognise and understand what those red flags are beforehand. I mean, what I might, you know, my goal would be to prevent anyone ever getting into an abusive relationship in the first place. Um, but I guess also what's incredibly important to deal with is all the stuff that happens during and after um, and having a, a space to be able to talk about that and for people to understand that there is help and there is support. And um, just because you are in a relationship with an abuser doesn't mean that that's it and life's over. And because it often can feel that way, especially I think with emotional, psychological abuse. And I've heard a lot of women saying, actually the physical was far less problematic. I could take a slap, you know, they shouldn't have to, but I could take that. What I couldn't take was being ground down every single day. Exactly. And I think that that's a really important point that when, you know, someone meets their partner who might end up being abusive, they don't on their first date go, oh, and by the way, I'm mm. going to be a perpetrator of domestic abuse. And this is, you know, what our relationship is going to be like in six months, a year, two years, five years, whatever. Mm. It's a really often a quite a slow and subtle process of those behaviours which build up over time and kind of seep in. Yeah. And women often, suddenly something will happen and maybe an incident or so, like something will trigger them to think, God, but how have I, how has it yeah. got to this point? Yeah. And actually it's been a, that slow build up of behaviours which kind of spirals over time and um, it can be really hard to identify. And what we know is that women are often told it's your fault or you're making it up or it didn't happen like that actually, or, you know, you're remembering it wrong. Or And that's gaslighting, isn't exactly. it? Yeah. And it's, it's really difficult to recognise that actually it's not your fault and mm. it's not okay. Um, and having a really good understanding of coercion and control and all those different types of behaviour is so important. I always tell people to watch uh, Murdered by My Boyfriend, um, which is no longer available on BBC iPlayer. Mm. I feel like we should write to the BBC and say that needs to be available forever yeah. and should probably be shown in schools um, mm. because it shows exactly, as you said, the really subtle, you know, right at the beginning on the first date, something as little as him pulling up her bra strap and feeling a bit like, well, I don't want other men to see that. But, you know, if you're on a date with a guy and everything's brilliant and he does something as little as that, very few of us are going to go, oh, you know, this might mm. be... It's not until these build-ups of the mm. red flags happen, as you say, that it's like, oh, shit, perhaps I could have seen this coming. So that is one of our first questions. What are the signs and red flags for an abuser? How can we see them coming in the, in the early stages of dating? It's really difficult, I think, in the early stages of relationships as well, because there's there's something that we kind of label as like love bombing at the beginning phases of an abusive relationship. And that's what 
that's what sometimes keeps somebody in an abusive relationship because there's this period at the beginning quite often where things seem amazingly like you're swept off your feet you're messaged all the time you know somebody's always wanting to hang out with you you know somebody's kind of like sending you loads of gifts loads of flowers you know, all of those types of things and you're like this is too good to be true this is amazing um but actually like that type of behavior that you're describing in a second ago like pulling up somebody's bra strap and things like that can almost be seen as like oh this person is really protective Mm. of me this person really cares about me and all of those things and so when it's when those behaviors you know they start to become maybe slightly more coercive intimidating control techniques is when some of the initial red flags would be would be raised so things like somebody telling you that they don't want you to go out with your friends and family they want you to spend more time with them Mm. or they asking you constantly what you're doing you know all of those kind of little small details would be the first maybe red flags for something that could escalate right I mean I think uh, that's it's as you say it's so difficult because where do we where are the boundaries with something like jealousy or Mm. you know it can be very easy if you're at the beginning of a relationship and a man is saying oh I don't you know I don't um I don't like that ex of yours even though he's the father of your kids can you delete all of his pictures off social media you think actually that's quite reasonable thing do or if they're kind of like oh you know I really want to spend tonight with you instead of you going out with your girls it's very difficult not to take that as a compliment of just somebody who really is into you and um and so it is hard but I I think that there are I call them pink flags so I think a red flag if a red flag comes you run from it um but I think that often this these early subtle things at the beginning are what we call pink flags so you wouldn't necessarily run from someone saying oh isn't that outfit a little bit revealing you wouldn't you know if you're really into something with somebody you're not going to necessarily run at that but if you've got that one pink flag and then another one comes Mm. then you've got a couple of pink flags to me then they become a red so it's piecing together those little bits of behaviors yeah and I think it's also about how you're maybe monitor how you're changing your own behavior Mm. so if you're seeing those red flags or pink flags coming up um and then you're changing what you do to stop that happening again yeah so we know lots of women that we talk to might change the things that so they might stop talking to a certain friend as much or they might um stop wearing a certain top because they know that then that won't um, get a reaction from their partner Mm. but they've already started changing their behavior to satisfy their partner understandably so Mm. I think it's what really distinguishes for us a relationship that we would be worried about or we would think is maybe at the beginning stages of an abusive relationship or coercion and control is when you stop doing things or you change your behavior because you're scared or worried about what the consequence will be for you Mm. because we would like to think in a healthy relationship you would have a discussion about that and be like actually this is my boundary on this issue this is your boundary. Let's come to a compromise. You don't want me to see my ex anymore, but they're part of my friendship group. So we need to manage that. Mm. But if you are maybe in a more abusive or controlling relationship, then actually you changing your behavior because you're scared of what your partner might do, or you're worried about the consequences, or you feel anxious about that, that for us would be a really clear warning sign. Yeah. And you often hear women say, I just stopped mentioning that because I knew it would turn into an argument. So that's a very clever thing that they do, isn't it? You know, they 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 make it so you just have to give in because, I mean, I think a lot of abusers are narcissists. I think the, the narcissist term is kind of thrown around quite loosely. Being diagnosed as a narcissist under the DSM mental health 
uh, you know, it's a diagnosable mental illness. And I'm, I'm not sure that everybody who we call a narcissist is necessarily diagnosably a narcissist. But I think there's these real narcissistic traits that seem to tie a lot of abusers together, uh, which is just this sort of sense of entitlement, this inability to see anything from anybody else's point of view, this need for control, um, a lack of empathy, um, it's all about how they look and how you, how they perceive their partner to look to other people. There's lots of gaslighting behaviours. So I think if you recognise any type of narcissistic traits in somebody that you're dating early on, I think that that can often be uh, a key that you're going to end up in it, certainly in a, an emotionally abusive relationship at some point. So I think narcissism is a real, um, a real issue. So it's a real red flag. Well, I mean, something narcissism generally is a word that we tend to avoid using when we're speaking to women that we're supporting, just because it kind of medicalizes domestic mm. abuse and it gives it almost like an excuse or um, or reasoning. And a lot of the kind of behaviors that you described, we we would consider maybe more come down to issues around toxic masculinity, mm -hmm. feeling um, like male entitlement, you know, that kind of thing, a, a, a need to like control a woman or feeling like it's your right to control your partner. And narcissism, because it is like a personality disorder, like a medically diagnosable yeah. trait, it does kind of maybe excuse some of those behaviours. So actually it's dangerous in a way because then women will think, oh, well, he's a narcissist, that's why he's done this, like rather than actually this is not acceptable. Yeah, I mean, mm. the thing is, a narcissist can't change. Mm. They can't change. Mm. There is nothing that you can do to change a narcissist. Um, and that's been researched time and time again. So, mm. I mean, if you are recognising somebody as a narcissist, then there's no hope. You, got, you, you know, there, there can't be any hope for change. But that's really interesting, that perspective. And I'm going to learn from that because... Actually, I think that's really important that actually this behaviour often just comes from the fact that, no, I'm a man. You will cook, you yeah. will clean, you will suck my dick. Yeah. Sorry for the terminology, yeah. but um, but yeah, and 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 that's that's really important. And we often say women's, you know, we know that domestic abuse is a cause and consequence of women's inequality. And we know that the whole way in which society and our world is structured is that there are, you know, massive structural inequalities between the sexes. That, and also there is um, sexism, toxic masculinity that underpins domestic abuse and allows it to happen mm. at the huge rates that it still is. So it's certainly, you know, there's that broader, bigger picture um, of why domestic abuse is still happening. It's such huge volumes every year and is costing 66 billion pounds a year um in terms of the social and economic impact so it's it's there's so much to consider in terms of how that male entitlement sexism inequality all fits in and has mm. a massive impact on domestic abuse yeah it's huge and i wonder is there how do we change that is there i mean if you could talk a bit about the new laws around domestic violence yeah, sure. that i guess would hope people would hope is going to have some kind of impact on protecting people. But yeah, what what's, if you could let people know what what's the new... Yeah, it's, I think it certainly can, could have quite a big impact. So the government are um, bringing forward a new domestic abuse bill, which is actually, considering Brexit and everything else that's going on in Parliament, pretty incredible. Yeah. That there's going to be this new legislation and um, certainly shows just how important and critical uh, this issue is. And... 
So the government have published a draft bill, which you can find on gov.uk. And if you go to the Women's Aid website, you can find our responses and lots of documents and details about it on there. Um, But the new bill is aiming to kind of transform the response to domestic abuse across the board. So better protection for victims, dealing with perpetrators better. The legislation itself is actually only going to bring forward sort of nine new actual laws. And some of them are around protecting victims, like the rollout of Claire's Law, Mm -hmm. which is how... um, Women who might be worried about their relationships can go to the police and ask if their partner has got a previous history of domestic violence or um, the police can actually also see if someone, if a repeat or serial offender has got a new partner, they can actually make, proactively make a disclosure as well. Can I, so I just want to say that if you do live in the UK, um, Claire's Law, you can either go to your local police station. If you don't want to do that, you can call 101 and you can say that you are requesting information under Claire's Law. There are some flaws with that in that you might be dating somebody who has had the police called on them 40 times by previous ex-partners but uh, because that never resulted in any convictions I'm not sure that the police can disclose that to you so just because somebody doesn't have a conviction doesn't mean they're not a perpetrator Mm -hmm. but at least if you were to disclose it and uh, or get the disclosure and it had convictions on it then that would be something for you to help motivate you to leave but I I always say to people if you're worried enough to be seeking information under Claire's law about your partner then that should tell you everything you need to know you don't need the information from the police you need to know that your gut is already telling you this is not a good situation I'm in that's yeah, enough that's exactly right it's enough yeah sorry no so that's one of the one of the bits of legislation the government bringing forward and there's a whole range of different things and one of the key things which we're really pleased about women's aid is that um perpetrators of domestic abuse at the moment if you're going through the family courts can directly cross-examine their Mm. victims um if it's a case around child contact for example um so that will now be banned from happening in the future so if you're going through the family courts you've experienced domestic abuse that you can no longer be cross-examined by the perpetrator in that way which is really positive but there are some major gaps as well around the legislation but there's going to be quite a long period now of what they call kind of pre-legislative scrutiny where the, the draft bill will be looked at in more detail. So we'll be giving evidence and um, providing briefings to the committee on that. And hopefully we can broaden the bill out a bit more. But, it you know, it's a positive step and it's pretty incredible that it's happening at this, politi- you know, politically yeah. really difficult, challenging times. So certainly a good step forward. Absolutely. Um, so I've, I've got lots of questions and I think that we should start moving on some of them. So the first question sent in by a follower says... How do you move on from someone after a year and a half who just won't let you go? He sends me constant messages of control. For example, I'll never give up on you. He touches me whenever he feels like it. We have kids together and he sees it as appropriate to still grab my bum or inner thigh and then tell me, I know you want to. Even when I tell him bluntly, I don't want to. He doesn't understand the word no, which is why he forced me to have sex one time, which I have never gotten over. I feel like he will never let me move on. He constantly messages or he's popping up at my house randomly or slandering my parents as they've said no to him coming through on my days with the kids. I feel this invisible ball and chain to someone who has toxic love for me and I don't know how to free myself from it. I mean, the first thing I wanted to say on that one was he doesn't understand the word no. Well, yeah, he does understand the word no. He understands the word no. He's choosing not to take the word no seriously from you 
Because I bet if his boss or a police officer or somebody else, a shopkeeper said no, mm -hmm. he's going to understand it. So let's not make excuses for people, I think, in, in that way. It's such a common issue, like con the continuation of abuse when you've got children with somebody. It's something that we hear about all the time on the helpline every day. And I think in abusive relationships, you can really feel like the perpetrator has got this huge sense of power over you. And sometimes you can maybe overlook issues that actually are criminal offences. So what she's described there is basically stalking and harassment, sexual assault mm. that she's experiencing from him. So I think if she if she feels like she needs protection from that, she's absolutely within her rights to be logging that with the police. Because if she decides that it's not safe for her to continue to have contact with him, if the situation escalates, it's worth kind of having evidence of the abuse that she's experiencing and getting some legal advice around the contact that she has to have with him because of the children. Um, quite often we find that this type of situation does kind of end up going through the family courts because it's not really possible often to have civil contact with a perpetrator because quite often they're very unreasonable, very self-centered, you know, like you said, very disrespectful of boundaries. Um, so sometimes if you're feeling like it's just not possible for you to have contact, maybe in the interim, think about a third party um, to use the, for to handover with the children. Mm -hmm. Maybe think about a contact center, something like that, until you have some professional support in dealing with the situation. Yeah, I mean, I think in this situation, it sounds like there needs to be more formality around mm. the contact with the children. At the moment, mm. it seems like he just can come in and out whenever he wants. Mm. And actually, one way to resolve this might be to say, no, your times are, for example, 5pm on a Friday till 2pm on a Saturday, and that's it. And, you know, unless it's Christmas or whatever, and we need to change that, then that's what we're sticking to. And as you say, perhaps have handover in a public place or have parents, aunties, friends facilitating that. I don't think that it's healthy to allow him to think that he can just come in and out and to touch you. And as you say, I think it can be difficult because you think, this is the father of my child. I don't want to call the police on him. And yeah, actually he's only touched my leg. Well, you know, the police are out there dealing with terrorism and whatever else. And I'm phoning to say that my boyfriend touched my leg or my ex, but you know, even though she's well within her rights to do that and should do that. But I think the thought processes that go through people's heads are a bit like, well, I don't want to waste the police time or this will make it worse between me and him. How, how do we get over that kind of thing? I think it's difficult in this case as well, because particularly because obviously they have separated, but he's still accessing presumably where she lives and where mm. the kids live. And there's obviously, I would, it would suggest to me that the reason that he's having that ongoing access because she feels like she can't stop him mm -hmm. or she's scared to stop him, scared of what the consequences of not allowing him kind of back in the property. So I think there's certainly uh, some ongoing kind of safety issues that even if she doesn't want to go and report something to the police, going to talk to them about the situation um, and how she can help, you know, how she can try and make that safer. And I think particularly around obviously what is sounds like quite an informal agreement about contact with the children. I think I would agree for trying to formalise that, but obviously doing that in a way that's going to be safe for her. Um, if he's still having this much control and coercion over their lives after the relationship has set, after they've separated, I think that um, definitely seeking some more kind of professional advice around that would be yeah. good to do. I think that's a good idea. And I mean, if you're in the UK, you can contact Women's Aid who can put you in touch with your local domestic violence support service. And there is one in every local authority, or there should be, um, 
internationally, I'm not sure, but I would say put into Google what your local area is and then domestic violence support. And you should be able to get information about something somewhere near to where you live, uh, where where you can access direct professional help. Um, and if there is nothing local to you, then obviously use resources on the internet, but make sure that you're looking at safe uh, sites. Don't just go down onto any old weird forums. Look at something like Women's Aid or something that's uh, relevant to to where you live. Um, but there is support out there, and 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 I think it's really important to take it because otherwise this situation just perpetuates itself and goes on and on, and he remains in control uh, even after you've left, which is you know a horrible situation to be in. The next question kind of leads on from that a little bit about the complications uh, that arise when you get involved with social services and housing and you're trying to leave an abusive relationship. And And this lady said that she's getting completely different information from social services and housing. One says that I have the right to do one thing. The other says that I don't. I don't know what to do. Is this common? Really common. I think. I think one of the main things is that all of the local authority services have different priorities. So social services concentrate on the safety of children, housing, you know, they deal with a completely different issue. Um, and obviously lots of services are underfunded and they kind of maybe um, can tend to kind of pass the responsibility back and forth between each other. So um, if you're dealing with housing, they'll say, you know, social services need to be helping you with this issue and then vice versa. So I think sometimes it's useful to have either um, a professional who's a bit more neutral understands maybe both sides of that situation. So something like having um, an advocate, a caseworker from like a local specialist domestic abuse organisation or speaking to something like Citizens Advice or the helpline who have maybe got an understanding, a more neutral kind of understanding of what the authorities' um, responsibilities actually are to you and what your rights are in that situation. Sometimes though, like we get a lot of women calling, you do need some kind of advocacy or support with going to those services when they need help just to kind of give them a bit of support with that. Yeah, I mean, I think it can be very overwhelming. Mm. Often they feel for the sake of the kids because often perpetrators will convince mothers that the children will get taken away from them if they report or they make them think that the the life of their children in a single parent family would just be hellish. You know, it often mothers... T- want to protect their children but it takes a long long time for them to seek out and get support and then I think quite often when people phone the police they might not get the best reaction from the police then that report gets sent to social services and then social services are at your door and often what's presented to women is basically leave him or lose your kids Mm. if that's not victimizing a victim I I really don't know what is Uh, and I understand that social services are coming from the perspective of these children could die and I mean there are risks to children in uh, abusive relationships, not just the physical. Obviously, the emotional is significant. Watching your mum being assaulted or or even just emotionally abused and then having to go to school and act normally, not knowing how your mum is at home that day. I mean, it's traumatic for a child. And often children are at massive physical risk, even if that person doesn't necessarily harm the children. I've known 11-year-old boys who've jumped in to protect mum and ended up having an arm broken or or whatever so there are massive risks so social services are often looking at it from that perspective like if anything happens to that child we are responsible now that we're involved but I think the women are then pushed into these situations where it's like they're they're stuck between a rock and a hard place what we can say is that we know that 
there is a massive fear factor with women reporting domestic abuse because they're terrified of what social services will do. Yeah. And we need to break down that barrier because social services involvement is so vital to so many families. But actually, there are major issues at the moment. We know there are some amazing social workers who change families Mm. and children's and women's lives. And they are doing, you know, absolutely everything they can go above and beyond but we know in some areas there are massive gaps yeah. around understanding domestic abuse, the impact that it has and having that empathy for victims and not unintentionally victim blaming them yeah. for or asking them to manage perpetrators' behaviour. And we know we've did a research project as part of our Child First campaign, which is all around child contact, family courts, where actually women were sent letters by social services after reporting domestic abuse to the police to ask them to stop letting the perpetrator back into the home. Mm. Nothing was sent to the perpetrator. So, you know, we really need to address those sort of structural issues um, within lots of different agencies, not just social services. It's not an issue that's unique to them by any means in the way that we're tackling domestic abuse and the way that we're actually not placing all the onus on the woman to sort that situation out. And we're actually putting the responsibility in the hands of the perpetrator, who's the one who's actually doing doing the damage. Absolutely. I mean, you're right. I mean, there are incredible social workers and most social workers have gone into that profession for exactly this. They want to protect, they want to help, but it's the systems and the lack of resources that that often... um, prevent them from being able to do really significant work and and making it more of a right it's either or rather than actually let's really work with you and heal you and heal your children to get out of this they they just don't have the time or the space um but but yes it's it you're you're absolutely right very often with social workers as well they they don't even talk to the perpetrator at all for the course of an assessment and it all comes down on the mum um, to to deal with everything. And, and, and you're right, it would be so much better if people weren't terrified of social services and actually if victims and survivors felt that they could be um, open and honest with social workers about the reality of what's going on, I think social workers would be able to protect them a lot better. But quite often they feel that they have to lie um, and perpetrators often have a hold over them like, oh, well, I'm going to tell them that you smoke, you know, a spliff every other night. Uh, things like that, that they think, oh, you know, I might lose my kids over that. You're not going to. Um, being open and honest actually is going to be a, a, a much better route of protection for you than covering stuff up or, or being worried about what's going to come out Definitely. about you. I think perpetrators threatening to make false allegations to professional services is such a huge issue and something that like it just comes down again to, you know, being being really convinced by the perpetrator that he's got so much power over what happens to you but actually for social services to actually remove the children from your care it's, it's a lengthy process and it's not something yeah. that just happens overnight you know so it's important to remember they don't have as much power as maybe seems absolutely social workers cannot just swipe swoop in and yeah. take your children um the only way that your children can be taken off you immediately in an emergency situation would be by uh, the police under what's called police protection and that only lasts for 72 hours before uh, the local authority would have to go to a court to apply for an interim care order uh, for your children to remain in local authority care for a longer period while they do an assessment but um, but yes don't allow perpetrators to make you believe that you're going to lose your children because of what they've done to you because if you're real and you're honest and you're open, there is support available and you will be believed. Um, all right, the next question says, how do I handle mutual friends and family who have been charmed by the abuser and who victim blame? 
it's very common as well, isn't it? So common. I mean, it's so common for perpetrators to have this kind of like Jacqueline Hyde type of personality. So behind closed doors, there's somebody completely different to the image that they portray in public. And it's really easy for friends and family and neutral people to kind of be manipulated by them. You know, that's what perpetrators are incredibly manipulative. And sometimes it can feel like it's going to be impossible for people who have only seen that side of the perpetrator to believe you when you tell them about what's actually going on. Um, maybe it, I think I think sometimes when you're when you're experiencing that from friends and family and they're kind of maybe siding with the perpetrator or they're feeling you're feeling as if they're not supporting or believing your version of what's happened, maybe the best thing for the time being is to maybe distance yourself from those relationships while you are able to kind of move on and recover from that relationship. And I think eventually everybody will realize what's actually happened. But it just it just takes time, you know, perpetrators are incredibly manipulative, like mm. I said, and it's really easy for them to convince people, you know, making kind of false accusations again, making false stories, telling people that you're the one who's abusive in the relationship are all things that are so common for abusive people. And, and you often hear things like, um, I mean, in, in a lot of uh, domestic violence homicides, when they're reported by the media, mm. they will start asking neighbours and stuff, and they oh, he couldn't have done that. Jack was a lovely man and he, well, he just stabbed his wife to death. But Jack's still a lovely man, you know, who was a crime of passion or whatever. And pe people can't seem to mm. be able to look past the facade of that, you know, lovely family man. Um, we work with um, Luke and Ryan Hart, who are campaigners in this, and their father killed their mother and their sister. Mm. Um, and that's exactly what they talk about a lot in their campaigning work and in their book is around how the media represented their dad as like a family man who kind of just snapped. And we see that again and again, where, you know, random people are interviewed and give their opinions on this person who was, you know, a good dad or, uh, you know, a nice community mm. person, uh, well-liked, well-respected. Um, which is completely irrelevant, actually, to the stories that are being told and takes the voice away from the victims in those cases and kind of tries to explain away mm. the perpetrator's behaviour, particularly when it's um, something around the woman might have had an affair or moved on or, you know, you see those headlines all the time and it's it's so frustrating because what it does is it completely silences the victims in those cases and and almost tries to excuse the the perpetrator's Mm. behavior and it doesn't give you know the full picture of what was happening in that family which is just so important to mm -hmm. understand absolutely and actually that kind of persona is maybe like one of the tactics of domestic abuse as well because it is so difficult to leave a relationship when you think that nobody's going to believe you and you're not going to get any support of the situation because everyone believes his side of the story or only believe what they've seen in public if you contact women's aid or any other domestic violence charity uh, local to you, then you will be believed and they will hear your story and they will be able to support you to find ways of managing the fact that you are now kind of caught in this weird situation where your friends and family are taking the side of the abuser um, and, and that shouldn't make you feel like you're going mad or like perhaps you're wrong and because that's often how we can interpret it is that oh, well, actually, maybe it's my fault because he's really great to everyone else and I'm the only one who sees this monstrous side of him. So perhaps I'm the only one that brings that out in him. Um, and those line, lines of thought, we, we we have to try to stop them mm -hmm. and, um, and get professional support because professionals will believe you. Um, so let's move on to... Uh, 
to the next one, which says that I've been with this guy for two years. I haven't met any of his friends or family. He's very possessive of me and used to be quite controlling until I put my foot down. I have been unhappy with him for a year and we have had so many fights where I have ended up injured, full of bruises, etc. However, I know he loves me more than anything and he would be so, so lost without me. He will just not let me leave. Every time I do, he will come up with the nicest gestures and say the nicest things and do the most for me and I always fall for it. It's becoming a joke now as the rest of the time, all he does is tell me that I'm not all that and he makes me feel insecure. He knocks my confidence badly. I just don't know what to do anymore. He uses the fact that he's done so much for me over the last year as an excuse as he's had to try to as he, he has had to financially support me because I haven't been able to work due to my depression and general mental health being so bad. What should I do? What she's described in that is absolutely like the cycle of abuse, you know. It's like so textbook, it's, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, so very often in abusive relationships, there's kind of like a period of um, like that being like it, it kind of being a typical kind of like healthy, you know, relationship. And and then quite, quite, it's either, either kind of gradually or suddenly there'll be an incident of um, maybe a physical attack or an abusive incident. And um, then that it goes into kind of this um, groveling period where the perpetrator is making all of these false promises, you know, showering you, you know, with compliments and gifts and all of those things, trying to manipulate you to stay in the relationship. Um, but quite often, you know, it's called the cycle because this is what happens. It goes rounds and rounds in circles and something like that happens, you know, six weeks, two weeks, six months later. Um, and we find usually that with the abusive incidents, it, it just tends to get more and more serious each time it happens um, and escalate. And I think those kind of good periods, the times when he is kind of making all these promises and things are good for a while, is definitely one of the things that keeps women in those relationships. Because of course, you've invested in that relationship and you want to believe that he can change and things will be better. And you have seen that he can be nice and he can be really attentive and loving and all of those things. And and you you want that because that's what you've committed to. Mm. Um, but it, it's, it's very often the case that the situation tends to get worse and more dangerous as time goes on rather than get, get better. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a real, um, what she says about the fact that he's financially supporting her and now mm. she's completely, you know, she feels that she owes him something She's not only reliant on him, dependent on him, but she also emotionally feels like indebted to him. Um, and and that's keeping her there despite how awful everything is. Um, I mean, she says, what should I do? And it's like, I know that a lot of people listening to this will be going, well, it's really obvious what you should do. You know, leave, what are you doing? But I think when you're from the outside looking in, it can seem, if she was reading or hearing another woman's story that was exactly the same, she'd be going, what? You know, mm. leave. But when you're in it, it is so hard to see through that. How do you get to that point where, what generally happens to get somebody to the point where they're in this and they go, oh shit, actually, I do need to go. I do need to leave. I think everybody has got their own boundaries and it's quite often we'll get a call on the helpline when something has just suddenly happened and that's the final straw for that person. But it's so difficult. I mean, like you're saying, from an outsider's perspective to watch somebody go through that, you know, for months, years, whatever, until they get to a point suddenly where they're like, you know, it could be an incident with their children. It could be, well, you know, something to do with something that's just too much. And it just gets to a point where you suddenly like enough is enough. And you start to recognize, you start to maybe talk to people, reach out for support. And you start to listen when people are telling you, you know, these things are red flags, these things are abusive. And then 
maybe start getting some help, you know, from friends and family professionals to think about leaving that relationship. But everybody's boundaries are different and everybody's kind of limit is different. Mm. And also even when you get to that point where you've gotten to the last that you can take or, you know, there are, again, all of these barriers to leaving that relationship. So maybe it's not possible. But sometimes if you're if you're kind of witnessing a friend or family member going through that, they might have already decided that they're not going to stay in that relationship, but they can't leave just yet, you know. Mm. So it's really important to be patient with people who are going through this because maybe they know, of course, you know, that this relationship is not healthy or it is abusive, but it's just not the right time for them mm. to end it. Yeah. It sounds like she hasn't got there yet. Kind no. of mentally or psychologically, she's still excusing his behavior. Um, well, she feels like at the moment it sounds like, and obviously, we've only got limited information, but mm. it certainly feels like um, there's some potentially some financial and economic control going on there. And actually, she's not been able to work because she's saying she's got depression or general mental health issues. Mm. And we don't know what's causing that, but certainly we know domestic abuse exacerbates existing mental health issues, can cause mental health to really deteriorate. And then often we know that women will end up having to give up work and become much more financially reliant on their partners. Mm. So it certainly looks like that might be part of the kind of pattern of abusive behaviours that she's experiencing. And something we hear all the time is, why doesn't she just leave? Why doesn't she just get out of the relationship? But we know it's so difficult to yeah. do that. And it's a process. And there are so many barriers to being able to leave safely, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. But certainly in this situation, it sounds like she's she's working through, it sounds like she's coming to that point of realising that that's yeah. going to have to happen. I think the fact anyone who sent me a message, I think yeah. once you've got to that stage, then this is a good start for you to go, okay, I know that this is not okay. I know that this is not right. <clears throat> Let me start to seek out some information and and to figure out what the plan is. But as you say, it can take such a long time to make that decision to leave. And then even after you make the decision to leave, I don't know what the stats are, you probably do. Um, I know that I think it's seven times or something, is it? That you're likely to resume yeah. the relationship before you finally leave it for good. And there's lots of missed opportunities as well that we know that, women will come into contact with different services or agencies or their GP or a health visitor or whatever, where there are real missed opportunities for people to ask about what's going on or just to delve a little bit deeper if someone's like, oh, you know, I've not been able to get out to the shops for a few days or whatever. You know, there, there's a reason behind that. Mm. Um, so there are lots of missed opportunities and we know women will often return to the perpetrator or sort of not leave, but then have to feel like they have to go back. So feel like there is, they, they have to, or they still love their partner and feel like it's been all their fault and, you know, there's, it's really it's really complicated and mm. every pitch is different. But yeah, there certainly are. Um, we know that it, it's hugely difficult for women to leave and um, mm. lots of women feel like they have no choice but to go back. Yeah. And also there is, I think this probably features in some of the other questions, but there is that whole thing of, actually, I love him. Mm. Like, I love him. And yes, there is all of this horrible abuse, which is killing me. But at the same time, I am in love with this man. And that is something I hear so often. Um, and I think people have to remember that love is not enough. <laughs> love is a doing word. Love is a verb. Love has to be reciprocated and it has to be shown in its actions. And you can love somebody, you can be in love with somebody and they can be in love with you. But the love is not enough to hold a relationship together. And it is not a reason to stay in something. Love will end if you want it to end. You know, you can work on love not you know, you can get over love. You can. Um, 
And and even if you you are not, uh, you can still make that choice to say, I am in love with you, but I don't want to be with you because the relationship hurts me. And love should never hurt. Um, but I think I think very often this notion of love keeps people there. And also this thing where where abusers have made them feel that nobody else will ever love them again. Um, that's used all the time. People think, well, what's the point? I, I don't want to be alone for the rest of my life. If I leave this relationship, no one's ever going to want me. So mm. it's very complex. Um, so the next question says, do perpetrators programs work? Should I give my ex a chance just because he's completed one? Can you explain a bit about what a perpetrator's program is? So a perpetrator's program, it's quite often ordered by the courts um, when there's been domestic abuse in a relationship and they're thinking about child contact. It's, it's almost, I don't know, in a way similar to like an anger management course or something like that. So it's often like a six to eight week program um, where it, your behavior is uh, addressed-ish <laughs> um, and you start to kind of um, question and try to change um, behaviors and patterns of abuse over in, in, in like a almost like a support group type setting. With... So they'll have a bunch of perpetrators mm -hmm. all together <laughs> sitting in a room talking about I guess what triggers your violence? Yeah, trying to empathize with their victim and things like that. I mean, the success rate for perpetrator programs are very low. I think it's, I mean, you, you need to be able to recognize that you, your behavior is abusive and want to change that as like a basis. To you start can't be forced. Point. If you're forced to go to a perpetrator's no. program by court, it's never going to work anyway because it no, wasn't because your decision. You don't even recognize, you know, well, you do, but you don't even you're not willing to acknowledge that what you're doing is wrong or hurting somebody or you're actually able to kind of empathize with that person. So the success rate is really low. Um, quite often perpetrators, like you said, will be in a room with other perpetrators. So they'll kind of just share the, the tactics that they use to control their victims. Um, and very, very often as well, if they, if they do kind of do the perpetrator program and they're starting to address some issues, Going back to a relationship that's been abusive previously, it's it's so unlikely that that relationship will change because the precedent has kind of been set in that relationship, and it's it's very very unlikely that that relationship will be non-abusive after the program. Um, like we were saying earlier as well, domestic abuse is, is it com it comes down again to kind of like deep seated issues around toxic masculinity. Um, victim blaming, um, sexism, misogyny, all of these things. And that's not really something that can be addressed in a six to eight week program. You know, these are core kind of beliefs that a perpetrator holds mm -hmm. that maybe like in independent long version of like psychotherapy, you know, would start to address some of those issues, but it's very ingrained. It is. And I mean, I, I, I know that a lot of perpetrators will have been children witnessing their fathers yeah. doing the same yeah. to their mothers how you would hope to unravel the you know a 20-year history in as you say a six-week course is it's nonsensical really um we work with um an organization called respect who run like an accreditation for domestic abuse perpetrator programs so not necessarily the court ordered ones but the other programs that are out there which may be more voluntary based so we would certainly recommend that any perpetrator programs that are used would be accredited mm. by respect because we know then that the standard is um, is going to be good and that it's based on an understanding of what works for the victims and what works for the women so it's 
working with the perpetrators, but also part of that would part of that program will be checking in with the victims, how everything is for them, and um, particularly if it's a, a relationship where the couple are staying together to make sure that the, the victim is safe as well. Um, so it's it's really important. And the the there's a project, Mirabel Research, um, which is the sort of biggest, longest term piece of research on perpetrator programs, found the sort of varying success rates and where perpetrator programs in that were looked at in that study were more successful was around reducing incidents of physical violence, um, which did decrease through the perpetrator programs, as you would expect and hope would happen. But what was found to have been less impacted by the programs was coercion and control and financial abuse, which we know are the kind of day-to-day mm. ongoing behaviours. So I think whilst perpetrator programs are important and we have to do better at managing perpetrators and we have to do better in our response to, to perpetrators. Uh, that's, you know, that's really clear. And it's something that needs really serious attention. Um, perpetrator programs certainly shouldn't be seen as um, kind of you do the program and you'll be, you know, your problems will be solved and it will all be fine. And I think you have ever, obviously every case is different, but we would urge extreme caution about, you know, and certainly wouldn't suggest that if someone's been on a perpetrator program, they're going to stop being a perpetrator of mm. domestic abuse because we know that's just not the case. Yeah, yeah. So it's not as simple as that. If someone comes back to you and goes, I've done a perpetrator's program, let me back in. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. No, um, exactly. And actually, as you say, if the relationship is abuse, has been abusive, it is likely to continue to be abusive. And you have to make that decision based on the history with the person rather than this little course that they've done I guess the responsibility is on all of us men and women who have children to say the only way that this is ever going to stop is if we teach our sons differently if we teach our sons a totally different view outside of toxic masculinity how to understand how their behavior impacts on everyone around them as a mother of a son I feel such a heavy responsibility to make sure that he grows up being a feminist and um but but how do you do it you know when there's so many you've got the social media and friends at school and all of these different messages I I I hope that what we can do at home with our children is powerful enough but but I worry that it's that it's not but um but also as I was saying earlier about the fact that a lot of perpetrators witness domestic violence um as children how how as mothers if we have been victims of domestic violence and we know that our children have been exposed to abuse, what can we do? What is out there so that we can make sure that our daughters don't become future victims of domestic violence and that our sons don't become perpetrators? Well, it's like you were saying about education around healthy relationships and healthy gender roles, you know, those types of things. There are as well you know for children who have witnessed or experienced domestic abuse in their homes there are kind of dedicated services for children and young people at domestic abuse organizations where they can get professional help with you know what they've witnessed or what they've been through um but i do think you know lots of schools are starting to roll out healthy education healthy relationship education um and healthy ideas around gender and sexuality and all of those things and i think that's probably one of the main things that we need to concentrate on it's something that Women's Aid have done a lot of work on as well. The Expect Respect Toolkit, I think, is what mm. Women's Aid have created to help schools with um, their education around healthy relationships and domestic abuse. And that education will be a statutory part of the national curriculum from this September onwards. And that gives us just the best 
opportunity to get these messages to children, you know, from all key stages through school that, you know, what is a healthy friendship? What are boundaries? What's consent? And have those Mm. conversations in a safe setting from a really young age. But I think it's really important to say as well that not all children who witness domestic abuse will go on to be perpetrators and not all perpetrators have witnessed abuse as children. So it's just having that really good understanding of of the kinds of things that underpin abusive behaviours and mm. being able to have conversations with children about healthy relationships and boundaries and all of that stuff, which is so important. And hopefully, you know, we can, with the rollout of this new education, the national curriculum, really start to see a change in the attitudes, opinions, values that young people have. And we know that domestic abuse isn't happening in the cultural vacuum. It's happening because of sexism, misogyny, and all the things that we know are happening and um, that enable an environment where domestic abuse can happen is, you know, as much as it does at the moment. And mm. that's something we certainly are working on and trying to challenge. You know, we've done lots of work over the last couple of years with things like Love Island, yeah, where there have been really obvious examples of extreme misogyny, yeah. gaslighting, yeah. and calling that out and trying to have a conversation about it sort of nationally and in, in the media and in the press about why that's not acceptable and the harm and the impact that that has, which is huge. Yeah, it is. That's, that's very similar to a lot of the work that I do on my page, which is looking at kind of... Uh, things that come up in sort of celebrity relationships and and behaviours. There was this thing around um, Cardi B recently and it wasn't necessarily domestic violence, but he cheated on her and then he, you know, she was like, leave me alone, I've just had your baby, you know, relationship's over. And then she gets this big gig where she's like the first woman to perform on this particular I don't know what it was, like a country music festival or something. And uh, and he hijacks the stage and does this big display of love, like, take me back. And everyone was like, this is the kind of man that we want, you know, somebody who shows their love and it does this big display. And it's like, actually, all these tiny little ideas, even though we're not talking about violence and whatever, the entitlement that you think mm. it's okay to go and wreck your wife's yeah. work because you've decided now that you, you know, want to apologise. So I think it's about looking and calling out all those tiny little things so that people stop going, this is relationship goals. No, it's not. This mm. is actually really a horrible way to treat mm. your partner uh, and and says a lot about what things could become if they continue with this entitled behaviour. But I'm really, I've learned a lot from you already, actually, particularly around the stuff about actually let's look more at misogyny and toxic masculinity Mm. rather than this narcissistic damaged man um so that that's massive for me really big learning so the next question was really came up over and over and over and over and it says our friend is in a violent relationship he's awful literally nothing good about him he treats her like shit he stops her from going out he's even getting in the way of her relationship with her own mum She has changed so much in the year that she has been with him. She used to be bubbly and outgoing. Now she is fragile and quiet. She has even changed the way she dresses. It's horrible to watch. We have all tried our best to make her leave. We have offered for her to come and live with us. We have offered to call the police on her behalf, but she just won't have it. And now it's beginning to impact on our friendship with her. It's hard not to be angry with her for being so stupid. 
How can we make her leave him? Again, I mean, we get so many calls from third parties on the helpline. It is so, so difficult to see somebody that you care about going through this situation. I think, you know, we've spoken a little bit about, you know, of a lot of the barriers that women face when they're thinking about leaving a relationship. And we know that it's not as clear for them as it is to us from an outsider's perspective of what's going on in that relationship. So I think the most important thing is just have as much patience as you possibly can. Make sure that that person knows that you're going to be there for them regardless of what they decide to do and try not to judge them too much. You know, mm. if it's not their time, you know, or they're not recognizing what's going on yet, it's just about kind of waiting for that to happen. You know, there unfortunately isn't an intervention strategy with domestic abuse as an adult woman. She's capable of making her own decisions. And unfortunately, if she wants to stay there for the time being, then that's up to her. And I think if necessary for somebody who is really struggling with watching somebody go through that, just letting that person know that you'll be there when they're ready and that you're not going to judge them. You know, you're there to listen if they need you, but you you think that that relationship is not healthy and, you know, you recognize some warning signs in that relationship. Maybe take a step back until that person is ready to reach out for support. And then when they are, you, you know, you'll be there to help them. I think it's incredibly frustrating. As she said, it's like, mm. you know, it's hard not to be angry with your friend. Um, and, and I and I recognise that. I mean, of course, you can't make anybody leave anybody because, as we've said, there are so many barriers to it and there's so much coercion and control that psychologically she's very much involved with him and he is her main thing at the moment. I think one of the things that we have to be really careful about when dealing with friends is to, you know, she, she's being controlled at the moment. You don't want to be doing that to her too yeah, so if absolutely. you're then her friend and you're in there going you need to leave this man mm. well actually what are you doing she's just got control coming from all angles and that is the last thing she needs at the moment and actually if you are continuously going well just leave him she's going to stop telling you mm -hmm. um what's going on and actually sometimes even though it's incredibly difficult sometimes the best thing that i think we can do as friends is to be an outlet of fun and love and a, a you know that hour that she comes to see you and goes for coffee and whatever don't sit there talking about him the whole time unless she wants to um have fun talk mm. about the stuff you talked about before he came along give her an opportunity to see that she is loved and that the world doesn't have to revolve around him and the world doesn't involve everyone in her life telling her what to do. Yeah. Um, be there, support her, recognise that he's isolating uh, on purpose so that he has more control and if you walk away because you're frustrated, then he's won. You know, he's won the game. So not that her life is a game, but, you know, uh, his plan has worked. Yeah, um, and that's exactly what he will want if this is... A coercive controlling relationship which it sounds like it is he's already getting in the way of the relationship with the mum and certainly he'll be trying to do the same with her friends as well so it's just being that really stable solid friendship that she knows what you know even if she doesn't speak to you for ages that you'll be there at the end of the phone and and ready to support her because that's just for a lot of women that is what will get them through and what will get them to leave is knowing that there's somewhere that they can go and there's someone that believes them yeah and sees what's happening and if there is a safe opportunity to do so, you know, give her the website address for Women's Aid and the helpline number because there's loads of information that they're on the website that she can have a look at or just call and speak to someone, even if she's not at that space yet of recognising that it's an abusive relationship, maybe she can look at the website and just and just have a read through some of the information on there. And similarly for the woman who's written in, that she can call the helpline as well and, and have a chat about it. Is there any way to privately browse? Because obviously some perpetrators do look at what their partners have been researching on the internet or whatever. Is there any way to access information on the internet 
from your home safely uh, or would you need to go to an internet cafe or somewhere else to do it at work? I actually don't know with our website. I know we've got a hide like a secret button so that you can... You can like exit it quickly and I think it deletes it from your search history. But I think you can also, I know for Macs definitely that you can choose a, like a secret browsing option on your on your um, browser, on your mm-hmm. internet browser. Um, but I can't remember like the settings exactly that it is. No, but I think if anyone's in any doubt, just try and use a computer somewhere yeah. that's public, that's not, you know, in your home or on your iPhone or whatever. And just, yeah. but yeah, just err on the side of caution. Yeah. Um, I've got loads of messages about this one as well, which is my violent ex is now in a relationship with a much younger woman. And I'm really tempted to message her on Facebook to let her know how dangerous he is. Is this a good idea? So something um, that we say to women who, you know, cool to ask about this a lot because we do hear about it, um, is is definitely try to remember how you would have felt getting a message like that at the beginning of your relationship with the perpetrator. So we know how common it is for perpetrators to be dishonest about their previous relationships, to make their ex-partners out to be crazy or to have done X, Y, and Z, you know. Um, and you're probably in the, that person in the new relationship is probably in that kind of honeymoon period with the perpetrator. So it's very unlikely. The love bombing stage. Absolutely. So it would be difficult to believe, you know, what that, that relationship could escalate to become at the beginning stages. You know, like we said, nobody signs up for an abusive relationship. I think a safer way to do that, like you were mentioning before, is looking into Claire's law in the future or kind of just making that common knowledge that that's available. Um, and, and maybe maybe if you did want to contact somebody, not necessarily saying, this is what he did to me, this is what's going to happen to you and all of those things, but just saying, you know, he might have said this about me, but if you ever need to talk, mm. I'm here. And that is the thing. This is why I always say that um, if you meet someone and they say that their exes are crazy, that can often be a red flag. Mm. Um, and you will have been painted as being a nutcase. And sometimes the perpetrators will say, she's going to probably contact you and she's going to, you know, you might hear all this stuff, but she's crazy. She won't leave me alone. And so when you do contact the new partner, they're like, oh, here's the lunatic, you know. Um, and actually what I, I, I think that it's very difficult because I think that survivors often feel um, survivor's guilt um, and they can feel that the responsibility of this new woman is on them. And that's an incredibly heavy burden to to place on yourself. It's like, you know, this woman is going to be in danger if I don't intervene. Um, But actually that is not your responsibility. Mm. It's not. And and the the biggest thing about it is that you could endanger yourself by by doing that. Um, You have successfully got away from this man and he is now with somebody else and it is not your responsibility to get involved in that. Um, If you genuinely think that there is a, a very significant risk to this person, you can contact the police or you can contact other agencies um, like a domestic violence support service. Um, I mean, what I think, and you mentioned a bit about this in the new bill, I think what would be best is if there were disclosures made. If a perpetrator gets into a relationship with somebody else, the police should have a duty to inform them, you know, of that person's history. Um, And I'm not sure, does that happen at the moment? I know it happens if they're MAPA. It can mm-hmm. happen if they're mapper. So yeah, when they're repeat, really serial repeat, very yeah. dangerous offenders who've been convicted of 
of crimes. I think with the new laws, what it will do is enable the police to do those disclosures on a more um, regular basis. But the you know it's the threshold about when you would make a disclosure. And again, like we discussed earlier, not all cases would have been to the police. So you know, for lots of perpetrators, they won't ever be known to the police in that way. Um, but the new laws will make that happen in a much more consistent way and make sure that um, the police are making those disclosures when they're able to. Um, but yes, I think there will still be gaps and there will still be those repeat offenders and re repeat perpetrators who will never be known to the police. So it's, yeah, it's it's a tricky one. Mm, it's very difficult. But yeah, I think the overriding rule on that is don't involve yourself on in it and hopefully she will see the red flags and get out of the relationship um, by herself. But we, we cannot hold ourselves uh, responsible for, for what other women are going for. Through, she has to put safety first. She has to. Yeah. Absolutely. That is the number one priority. Absolutely. So the next question says, it's been three years since I left my abuser. He made my life a living hell, but I still think about him every day in a positive way. He has a new girlfriend and I feel jealous. Whenever I go on a date, nothing comes of it because they don't compare to him. How can I stop missing my abuser? And why do I miss him when things were so bad when I was with him? So complex, isn't it? Mm. Well, we well, you know that abusive relationships are so intense. And there is definitely kind of um, quite often a form of trauma bonding that, that you can experience from being in an abusive relationship. Quite often as well, um, because both of the, the negative and good times are extreme. So you can kind of put the good times on a pedestal um, and minimize the abusive periods or phases they went through in that relationship. Um, something that we often kind of advise people who are struggling with this is when you're feeling like you're missing that person or you're kind of feeling nostalgic about the relationship or the good times with that person, making making a list or writing down the the reasons why you left that relationship and the behaviors that you experienced and what you went through and, and why you left can be a really good form of kind of stopping your mind from going there too often when you're starting to feel like you're missing that person. Because often when you remind yourself of the reasons why you left and the negative side of that relationship, you know, you, you remember what you went through and mm. how bad it actually was. And you're not actually missing that person. You're missing the way that they made you feel at the beginning or the way that they made you feel when times were really good. Mm. Um, but that was not who that person was as a whole. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, it comes back a bit to the kind of stuff at the beginning, that the love bombing. We don't go out on dates with these people and they just get us in a headlock and punch us in the face and then, you know, we spend the next five years with us. It's beautiful and amazing and it feels intense and it feels like nobody's ever loved me like this before and this person's going to take care of me and I can see this massive, wonderful future. And then they change. But at the point that they change, we're already very much locked into this idolizing this person and being completely in love with them and feeling safe with them and all of that. And then when this little, you know, the abusive, the flags start coming in and the behaviors start coming in, it's almost like it's, it's, it's never too late, but it's by that point you are hooked and they mm -hmm. do that on purpose. Um, and, and so it can be actually not that person that we miss or the relationship we miss. It's, it's the image of what we thought it was going to be um, that we miss. It was what we had at the beginning, which was actually a false reality. That was never what it was going to be. That was never who anything that that person could offer because they are an abuser. Um, but in terms of trauma bonding, can you explain a bit more about what trauma bonding is? 
So trauma bonding is a bond that forms from an intense emotional experience. So it's really common for it to happen after an emotionally abusive relationship. So basically develop a kind of attachment to the person that abused you Mm -hmm. because it was such an intense emotional experience. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. And it does explain a lot about why it is so hard to move on even when they were so awful to you. Um, And I think that writing, writing down a list is is a really good idea and yet continuing to remember um that you are just romanticizing this person and actually mm. what they put you through was nothing to miss and it's important to remember as well that within that relationship you've probably been really ground down your self-esteem is going to be rock bottom you'll be hugely impacted by the abuse and your your sense of self after that relationship and who you are without that perpetrator because we know in in abusive relationships that women's uh, own personality can be really squeezed and diminished by the perpetrator. So, you know, she's probably still in that process of of um, actually recovering after the abusive relationship. And even though she's been out of it for three years, the impact of that can last for years, decades, mm. we know. So it is part of that process and just beginning to kind of rebuild your self-esteem. And if she hasn't had any support, counselling or anything like that, that that's something that it might be really helpful for her to look into and and feeling the way she's feeling is completely normal and natural but it's just about thinking she knows that that relationship wasn't right it wasn't safe and it was you know a a bad relationship abusive relationship so it's just about thinking about you know if she's still struggling with that what she can do to kind of move move forward and move on in a positive way that's going to be um it's going to be good good for her and to rebuild her confidence and self-esteem and realize that you know she doesn't she deserves better and um to be in a happy and healthy relationship Absolutely. And this fits in quite well with the next question, which says that my ex constantly told me I was not good enough and that nobody else would ever want me. How can I stop these words ringing through my head when I'm trying to date? Um, I mean, that fits in with exactly as you said about, you know, they grind down your self-esteem on purpose. They can't control you if you are feeling wonderful about yourself and you are, you know, feeling like you can take life by the horns. They can only control you when they have you know, as you say, diminished the light from your personality and got you into a position where you don't believe that you can function without them. Um, so so it's it's very normal to feel like that. But how, do, how does she stop those words ringing through her head when she's trying to date new people? Well, recovering from emotional abuse is such a journey. And like Sean said, like it can take years to recover from emotional abuse and psychological abuse in an abusive relationship. There are, I mean, there are things like if, if it's really difficult to do that on your own as well, you know, ca- trying to counteract what the damage that's been done in an abusive relationship. And there are kind of professional options for support with that. There's empowerment programs from local domestic abuse organizations. There's things like support groups, meeting other women who've been through similar things, you know, sharing your experiences and starting to kind of um, understand the tactics that perpetrators use and what's actually happened and the effect that that's had on you and starting to kind of address that and work on your self-esteem and and self-worth before getting into a new relationship and putting the control in the hands of somebody else um, around your kind of own self-confidence. Absolutely. And that leads perfectly on to the next question, which is about how do you break the cycle She said, I've been with three abusive partners and I don't know any different or what a normal relationship even is anymore. Um, And I think that is really key what you just said, which is don't 
even try and date or get into new relationships until you feel that you've done a lot of recovery work and built up your self-esteem from the last one because actually that's quite often how the cycle continues is going quite fairly quickly from one relationship to another without having healed and you end up picking this or you know being picked by the same kind of partner Mm. would you say that's very common do you often see women who are in multiple abusive relationships yeah it's really common I think when you've been in abusive relationships one of the kind of dynamics of that is to normalize abuse and normalize what happens what has happened in that relationship and you're often kind of blamed for that or you're made to feel like you've overreacted to that all of the kind of fixed and blaming dynamics that come with it so on one hand it's it's difficult to kind of um recognize what's what's happened is abusive and but at the same time sometimes it's it's it, you're able to learn from a relationship that you've been in before and you've recognized the signs and now you're aware of what to look out for in a new relationship sometimes that can be beneficial but recovering from an abusive relationship first before kind of entering into a new one, I think would be key in, in that kind of situation. Absolutely. I mean, do you think per- perpetrators can tell who's going to be a, a good victim? Well, we know that perpetrators sometimes target vulnerable women because they they want to kind of wear down their self-confidence, self-esteem, you know, something that we've talked talks about a lot. Mm-hmm. So somebody who discloses, you know, that they're not, not that there's any problem with doing that at all, but... there's no kind of like stereotype of somebody who gets into an abusive relationship every every type of person is is susceptible to getting into an abusive relationship but sometimes perpetrator will target a vulnerable person so somebody has a history of of abuse or abuse in their childhood sexual abuse all of those things it makes them maybe yeah more and i i always say that is that actually when you're in the initial dating stages it is good to to talk about, you know, um, your dating history or your, you know, it's, it's good to be able to find somebody that you can talk openly with about who you are and how you became the person that you are. But I also think it makes us quite vulnerable as women if we are too early letting them know that we've been in an abusive relationship or letting them know that we're overcoming some kind of trauma because it does mean that somebody who does want to lock onto that vulnerability is gonna see it um and and i think it's important not in early dating stages to lie um about anything that you've been through but don't necessarily let it all out too early um just to avoid somebody who might be a predatory kind of perpetrator um but yeah i mean you got first of all you can't blame yourself for being in in a cycle like this never blame yourself for having been with three abusive partners but also learn to recognize what are the signals that are happening what are the Mm -hmm. patterns you know um really important to look at it the other thing that she said within that question was that the last guy that she was seeing was arrested and released last week due to hitting me and locking me in his house he was released because it was his word against mine i know he will come after me it's just a matter of time I am unable to get a restraining order as we never lived together, no kids, and our relationship was less than three months. Now, that's incorrect, isn't it? Mm. She can. So what are rights around, what are the rules around getting a, a restraining order? Well, a restraining order isn't something that we speak too much about because it comes as a result of like a criminal court proceeding. So 
Something that we um, advise more around is a type of um, civil court order, a type of injunction, which is called a non-molestation order. So there are a couple of organizations that can support with the application for one of those. And there are kind of like um, guidelines around who's eligible for one and whether or not you would be able to. You have to call the police within 14 days. Is that right? Something something like that needs to be a recent incident, basically. But I think um, there's, so if you look on the, the website for DV Assist, Domestic Violence Assist, um, they're an organisation that help with the application and they can talk to you around your eligibility for legal aid to apply for one, whether or not you'd be eligible for one, all those types of things. So they're a really good organisation to get in touch with or the helpline, obviously. Right. And if you can't get legal aid or anything like that, can you fill out the application yourself for the non-molestation order? You can yeah. apply for that yourself. And a non-molestation order is likely to include places that that person can't come to, perhaps your workplace, your home, your children's school, other places where they might be able to access you um, and it lasts for a set period of time. And does it mean if you have a non-molestation order in place that the police will respond differently or more quickly if you call the police about that person? So it means that any contact from the perpetrator turning up at your house, texting you, breaching the non-molestation order would be an arrestable offence when it's registered with the police. So that means that if you called the police, they would then have a duty to kind of make an arrest when the perpetrator is continuing to harass or or turn up or continue to abuse you. I think the thing is not to be kind of dismissive of the protective systems that are in place, but quite often perpetrators don't care about Mm -hmm. non-molestation orders. They don't care about being on bail. They don't care that they've been arrested because quite often all the times that they've been arrested, it's never come to anything anyway. So the system has shown them that they're kind of in control of this. So um, is there any other means to stay safe other than a non-molestation order if you think your perpetrator is the type that's not going to be worried about that kind of thing? Well, there are a range of options available. Obviously, there are court orders, but yet they are limited in what they can do. And if you've got a really persistent, obsessive and controlling perpetrator, you're right. Sometimes they don't care if there's an order in place, even if it's a criminal offence to breach that order or it's a arrestable offence. Um, but there are um, sanctuary schemes that you can get support with from your local authority or local organisations where you can have extra protection measures put in place on your properties that might be extra locks on the windows and doors a panic button which they're not in some cases they can be useful but obviously we don't want women to feel like they're prisoners in their own home Mm. if they're experiencing domestic abuse and then for lots of women um they may feel like the safest option for them is actually to leave the home and obviously ideally we never want that to have to happen and it's absolutely a last resort scenario but there are a network of confidential safe houses, we call them refuges, around the country that are there for exactly this. You know, when someone is no longer safe to stay in their own home, they feel like they've tried everything, they need to just leave, then that's what those uh, places are there for to help women and they can be accessed through the National Domestic Violence Helpline um, and uh, are there to support and help women who are no longer able to stay safely in their own homes. And there are key workers there and then they can support, you know, the move on process from a refuge. Once you're ready, your key worker will help you to apply for housing in a different local authority. There are obviously so many different factors though, like if you've got a mortgage, 
um, if you are uh, no recourse to public funds, so you're somebody who is unable to uh, legally claim benefits in this country, then uh, you're unable to pay for the refuge space necessarily. So there are lots of added factors and added complications, aren't there? But refuge is a really excellent um, option if, if you really are unsafe. The other barrier to that is if you've got male children over a certain age, they can't go to the refuge either. So, um, so yeah, but but it is an option and, and it's an option that will help a lot of people. But what are the options for most people that can't go to a refuge? I mean, is it just... Well, there's the sanctuary schemes, obviously, there's oh, yeah, being in touch with the police and trying to get other protections put in place. It's maybe... Um, thinking about making sure that you've got the right support in place. And it it is really difficult. And obviously Mm. every case is different. Um, And it's hard to give kind of a sweeping bit of advice in that scenario. And and we would always recommend that people call the helpline and chat, have a proper chat through. Professional support is available and you must take it. And And even though there are barriers, regardless of the barriers that you face, you're going to be far um, better off speaking to somebody from a you know a professional organization like women's aid then you are just not seeking any advice at all don't allow those barriers to make you go well there's nobody going to be able to help me because there is and there is a light at the tunnel for for everybody regardless of of how of how difficult it can seem on the road kind of getting there all right so the next question says how can you ever trust anyone again after being in an abusive relationship i'm scared of all men and I can't get past the feeling that someone else will do the same as my ex. I mean, it's quite a big one, isn't it? Because if, you know, if somebody went to the park and got really badly bitten by a dog, they're probably going to be scared of dogs for the rest of their lives. It's mm. going to be quite hard to convince them that actually it's totally safe to run through a park with a load of wild dogs everywhere. How do we... I'm not saying all men are dogs. <laughs> Just for clarification. We've covered it a l- little bit in terms of covering from an abusive relationship and kind of coming to terms with what's happened to be able to move on to a new relationship. And I think once you've been through an abusive relationship before, you are maybe more aware of the signs, more aware of a healthy relationship dynamic. You know, you know what to look out for in a new relationship um, and to just kind of maybe maybe take it slowly with the new relationship. Yeah, not rushing into anything and not feeling like you need to go quickly and have a happy relationship to kind of balance it out. It's about mm. taking your time and feeling like you, you know, getting back to uh, feeling like yourself again and yeah. feeling like you can trust yourself and you can trust your own judgment mm-hmm. around men and around relationships that you want to enter into and that you feel really confident that you can identify behaviours that you might think are red flags, pink flags, and that you can pick up on that. And it's so important to just take that time to heal yourself to really work through the experience you've had and really understand it and not feel in any way rushed or that social pressure that we all can feel about like, oh, I need to have a boyfriend. I need to be married Mm. or in a relationship. Actually, you're much better off being on your own and being happy and being safe than feeling like you're having to rush into a relationship. And it was suggested to me from this question, she's probably not ready at the moment to go into another relationship. So just take your time. There's no rush. And just get in. If you feel like you need some more help or some counselling or whatever just just do it and you know then see how you feel after that and just Mm. just take your time it's very normal to experience post-traumatic stress disorder after an abusive relationship and I, I think that's part of it you know 
it's not unreasonable to be scared of all men after being put, you know, through hell on earth by a man. Um, and I, I think it, it's actually really valuable to maybe recognise what you've been through as a really traumatic and, mm. and to recognise that you may be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder or some kind of um, mental health depression um, that might be contributing to your feelings. And so I do think therapy uh, is incredibly important and and dealing with the trauma, recognising that yeah. you've been through a lot and, and all of these feelings are normal. Um, and as you say, you don't have to jump into anything with anybody else. And if you even experience one pink flag or red flag with somebody else you're dating, then then actually that's not necessarily a bad thing. Rather than going, shit, all men are crap, you can kind of go, actually, my radar is really on point now and I'm recognising these things really early on and I should be really proud of myself for that. Um, uh, and so that's a, a kind of good way of of moving on but yeah don't don't try and jump into the dating the dirting pool the <laughs> dating pool the dirting pool is quite accurate right so just a couple of last little ones um which say one says if a guy is really jealous and wants to control your every move is that domestic violence yeah <laughs> in a in a short answer that that's domestic abuse i mean it's it's like we were saying earlier it's really common for domestic violence to be used as kind of like the term for domestic abuse and often the concentration is on the physical side of the relationship, but we know that control and coercion is at the core of abusive relationships. And when somebody is um, behaving very jealously, constantly checking up on you, wanting to know all of your movements, um, that's incredibly controlling behavior. And that is definitely a sign of an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. It is not normal for a man to tell you, or a woman or anyone who you're in a relationship with to tell you what you can do, where you can go, who you can speak to. It's not normal for somebody to feel weird about you going out for lunch with your male colleague. It mm. is not okay for them to tell you you can't wear something or that they feel uncomfortable that, you know, somebody that you knew 10 years ago from school liked your picture on Facebook and start, you know, none of this is okay. And I think it's so important that people start to understand what is a healthy relationship. Would you it be okay if your mate, your best friend who you've known since you were 10 to tell you what you should and shouldn't wear or where you shouldn't go or who you shouldn't speak to? You'd be like, fuck off. You know, you don't have any right to do that. So stop seeing these relationships with men as something different as as something that um that that you know don't tolerate anything from them that you wouldn't tolerate from from your mate um it's not okay and even though it's not violence in the way that we see it you know he's not punching you in the face and telling you not to go out but it's violence in the sense that you are being controlled your personal freedom and independence is is being imprisoned and that's not okay um, and it can often escalate, you know, you can maybe go through 10 years of this kind of control and then it does escalate even further to, to, to much more scary and life-threatening things. Um, and a very similar question which says, is it abuse if it's physical but non-serious, like slapping, pushing and grabbing? Yes, that's, <laughs> I mean, all forms of physical, I mean, physical abuse can range from somebody restraining you, stopping you from leaving a room, you know, all of the things that you might consider to be, you know, in inverted commas, small forms of physical control, that would be considered physical abuse. So anything from somebody restraining you to somebody punching you in the face, this is physical abuse. Mm -hmm. Even if they're just poking you, you know, mm. anything as small as that, spitting, pulling your hair a little bit, if they are hurting you or touching you in a way that you are uncomfortable with, and that includes in the bedroom, 
um, you know, that that, that that is abuse. And really often as well, when you, someone might be experiencing those, um, what uh, might be seen as, but we know aren't, sort of lower level types of physical violence. It's often part of a much bigger pattern anyway. Mm-hmm. So yes, there are those incidents happening, which might happen every so often, or it might be happening every day or, or whatever, but there's almost... Uh, definitely also going to be a pattern of coercive and controlling behavior that monitoring Mm -hmm. regulating who you're seeing checking in on you those jealous obsessive possessive kind of behaviors going Mm -hmm. on as well as as that physical abuse so it's important we're looking at as much as possible all those other things as well and getting a really full picture and understanding of what what's going on in in that person's life because it's incredibly rare that a really lovely kind wonderful man is going to be pulling your hair every now and then you know yeah. there's, there's going to be there's going to be other things going on definitely. other things going on and I, and I think it's actually important to kind of come back a little bit to the sexual stuff as I was saying in terms of you know because I think people have these kind of levels well I'm not going to go and seek support because it's only this it's only pushing or it's only that and I think sexually and we covered it a bit at the beginning about consent and if you're in a marriage or relationship, you don't have to give your body to somebody. But there are also other things like the type of sex acts that they're asking you to engage in or coercing you to engage in. You don't have to have anal sex if you don't want to. Mm. If you find something painful or uncomfortable or embarrassing, you don't have to do it. Um, And I think very often people are being pushed into doing things that they don't want to do because they either think everyone else is doing it or his last partner did it and I won't be, uh, you know, I can't meet his needs. He's not going to think I'm good enough. You know, you end up doing those things and then they might even use that act to try to humiliate you further Mm. after you've done it. So it's really important to recognise all of those different aspects that that can impact. And that sexual coercion and sexual abuse that can happen within a relationship is one of the things we know it can be really hard to talk about people feel embarrassed or ashamed or mm-hmm. you know, that it's somehow their fault or they've you know they've been asking for it and we know that around particularly around sexual violence and rape there's an enormous amount of victim blaming like we see just huge amounts of um, blaming women for what they were wearing and mm-hmm. what they were doing and whether they had they been drinking and did they say no loud enough and things like that we hear it all the time and i think as well as as that we need to, <laughs> reproductive coercion is a massive issue as well where women's you know access to birth control is really controlled or regulated or actually perpetrators might stop them from taking the pill or might want them to get pregnant or might want them to have an abortion if they do get pregnant Mm. and that's all you know all of these things are part of that pattern of abuse and control that Mm. is not always necessarily physical but there's lots of other things going on and the pregnancy thing is interesting because actually domestic violence increases often during pregnancy Mm. you might have somebody who's not been physically violent at all and then every time there's a pregnancy they become really violent Um, and that's obviously incredibly dangerous and incredibly scary uh, and is certainly a time that you would need to speak to somebody speak to your midwife um, if you can but but obviously we know it's it's not that easy but if you can please seek professional help the last one that we're going to finish on today says i am scared to leave my abusive partner because he has threatened to commit suicide if i do i believe that he would do it and i could not live with myself if he did that's a very common one as well so common yeah it's i mean threatening threatening suicide or threatening to harm yourself is a really common tactic of emotional control and manipulation putting the burden of responsibility back onto the victim again to make you feel like it's your 
responsibility and you are unable to leave the relationship again due like Sean was saying earlier due to consequences of what the perpetrator might do if you were to kind of walk away or to leave that person and it makes you feel really guilty but ultimately it's important to remember the fact that you're considering leaving the relationship is due to that person's behavior the fact that they're behaving abusively towards you as an adult man you're you're not responsible for his welfare so if you do have concerns around that person that you can you can call the police to perform a welfare check you know there are professionals who can intervene to support that person but that person's mental health when they're abusive towards you is not your responsibility and although it's incredibly difficult you know anybody who's got any empathy would feel incredibly bad about um, putting somebody in that position but it's it's important to remember it is a tactic of emotional control and it's so common for that threat to be made and very uncommon for it to actually be performed that's what i was going to say in in 99.9 percent of these cases they've got no intention of killing themselves they're not going to do it if they do it they can't stay around to control you any longer so you know it's you know not a great way of looking at it but that's kind of the truth they're not going to kill themselves and if they do it wasn't your fault. Yeah. It was absolutely their choice and their responsibility. You're not to blame for any of this. Um, so, so yeah, it, I think it's, it's so important to recognise it as a real manipulation yeah, tactic. Definitely. And sometimes they even self-harm a bit, mm. end up in hospital with an overdose or something like that. You have got to recognise that as being part of the game. It's very difficult, especially if they're the father of your children, because you think, how am I going to cope? You know, how are my kids going to cope? They will and they are and you are not his parent or his therapist. It is not your job to make things better. Um, this is all part of it. So there we go. We have reached the end. Um, I want to say again, um, the Women's Aid, what's the phone number? So the phone number is 0808 2000 24 and that's the National Domestic Violence Helpline, which is run in partnership between Women's Aid and Refuge. And is that open 24 hours a day, seven days a week? It is, yeah. And it's manned by people like you yeah. who are experienced professionals who know what women are going through and yeah. who understand all of these complicated layers and who can help you um, outside of the UK. I'm not sure what is available because we do have a lot of podcast listeners from outside of the UK. There's something that we signpost to a lot called Hot Peach Pages, which is a list of um, violence against women and girls services internationally. So you can search that um, in your country to see what kind of services are available. What was that called? Hot Peach? Hot Peach Pages. <laughs> okay, so that's really helpful. Um, alternatively, just put your local area and the words domestic violence support into Google, make sure that it's a legit... Um, there is a domestic violence directory on the Women's Aid oh, website. Fantastic. Where you can find all local services and the National Helpline can also refer you to your local service, whatever your needs are. And call the police if you need to. Absolutely. They are there to support you. Call 999 if you are in an, a dangerous situation at the time but also use opportunities if you go to your GP you can talk to them if you see mm -hmm. a social worker a midwife a health visitor um, there are lots of professionals available who can form a network around you who can help you um, Women's Aid are an absolutely fantastic charity that support women both on the front line providing direct services like the National Dom Domestic Violence Helpline and local services to women. And they also play a vital role in changing laws and uh, doing mass media campaigns. And in order for them to keep going, we need to keep contributing to them as a charity so we can all play a role in ending domestic abuse. So get involved, donate, go to womensaid.org 
www.thepodcast.co.uk where you can click to make donations. You can also fundraise, take part in challenges to raise money for women's aid. You can also donate goods. If you go to the Women's Aid website, they give a list of organisations where you can provide clothes and toys and things for children and families who have ended up going into refuges. So there's lots that you can do to help. And uh, yeah, I'm so grateful that you guys came today. Um, I think that this has been really, really useful. I got so many uh, messages and it highlighted to me how many women are are, are going through this in in one form or another. So uh, thank you very much for coming here today. I hope that everybody's got something out of this. And I will will forever thank you for my learning around that narcissist thing because... I'm really happy about that one. Oh, I'm glad. All right. Thank you ever so much. Thank you and, so much. And uh, see you all next week. Bye.